name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. Hey, before we get started this month, I want to thank our sponsor, John Deere. It's been a really great sponsor for this podcast and makes great equipment. To find success in the forest, you can wait for the perfect set of conditions, or you can give yourself every advantage to create your own. As the worldwide leader in forestry, John Deere is best equipped to provide those advantages with productive machines, innovative technology, useful insights, and dependable support. The obstacles to success are many. Look to John Deere to help you outrun them all. Hi there. So this month, we have got an episode of the podcast that I am really excited about. We spoke with David Birdsall, who is a logger and also a game of logging instructor. If you're a logger in the Northwoods, you probably know about game of logging, but for those of you who are listening and you're not loggers or you've had a different path for some reason, game of logging is probably the biggest safety and productivity training program for loggers that's available. And it really revolutionized how loggers were cutting trees back in the day. It was created by a man named Soren Eriksson, who's from Northern Europe and came to America and basically changed the way that everybody was doing things. Uh, so Birdsall is an instructor with Game of Logging, and he found himself in a situation that not a lot of Vermont, Maine, New York loggers end up in, which is that he ended up doing storm cleanup on a Pacific island. Now, Birdsall wrote about his experience for our February issue, which if you don't have a copy of that, go about finding one, because his story about doing storm cleanup in the Pacific is, is just great. And it was really great to talk with him and talk with the guy who invited him to go do that storm cleanup. I'm really excited to bring you this story. But before we do the story, I want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, some of you may know that the Northern Logger magazine and the Northern Logger podcast are put out by a small trade organization called the Northeastern Loggers Association. And every spring, the Northeastern Loggers Association sends loggers and foresters from around the region to Washington, D.C. to talk to legislators about issues that are affecting the forest products industry. And that's called the D.C. Spring Fly-In. It's with the American Loggers Council, and that event will be held April 1st through 4th. So if you're interested in getting involved uh, with policy, interested in going and meeting people on Capitol Hill. This is a great event to attend. And if you're interested, you can call our offices at 315-369-3078 and ask for Joe Faneth. I've also got another couple announcements. One is that if you are making plans to come to our 2020 Loggers Plus Expo in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, that expo has actually been canceled this year, and we're putting all of our efforts towards the Northeastern Forest Products Equipment Expo that will be held in Essex Junction, Vermont in May. That's May 15th through 16th. It's going to be a great event. We're going to have our annual loggers banquet, uh, which is sponsored by Farm Credit, where we honor 
the best of the best in the industry. And we're going to have a ton of exhibitors and a ton of attendees who are serious business people looking to make investments in their business there. So hope to see you there. Okay, let's hear from David Birdsall about his experience doing storm cleanup on a small Pacific island at the invitation of a high school teacher on the island who had actually migrated there from Nevada. It's, it's a wild story. So here's David. I guess it, it starts with getting an email from the National Game of Logging folks saying that they were looking, the, the folks in Saipan were looking for some chainsaw training. So we called them up and um, quickly um, began talking with G. Van Giles, um, who was the, the fellow who was kind of the lead person there for this. And he was telling us all about what was needed. They were, they were having, um, typically they have these super typhoons every 10 years or so. And lately they've been happening a lot more frequently. And I think, I believe he said they had like three of them um, consecutively in a row, three years of them. And so because of the soils are so shallow there and, you know, he, his history, I think he said in, in the article, was that because of the, all the bombing that happened in, in the war, that the soils were just, you know, very shallow. So trees were tipping over uh, left and right with all these super typhoons. Um, and the, the buildings, many of the people live in these houses that are, some of them are wood, some of them are concrete block, but most of their roofs are just tin and the they just got devastated by these super typhoons with trees um, blowing on them, pulling the roofs off, trees across roads. And apparently the National Guard would go out and help clear the main roads um, and try to get the power back on, um, which took months and months to to get that to happen. Um, But they wouldn't go anywhere off the main road, which it was basically just a a loop road and a couple of in-between roads around the island. So G was, he basically, he, he's a, a quite an amazing character. Um, he was a, he was a banker um, in uh, Salt Lake City and made a lot of money and just decided he wanted to change his life and do more good for people. So he moved off to Saipan with his family and quickly became a, a teacher um, and he created what he, he has called the uh, million dollar scholars where he got enough people invested that they were basically taking, I think it was like 20 some odd high school seniors and getting them full scholarship at many uh, U.S. colleges. So he was like influential in creating all that, which is pretty amazing. And in between all that, with when the typhoons came, he basically created this, uh, this cleanup crew, you know, he got a tremendous amount of donations from all sorts of companies with tools and shovels and hammers and all sorts of stuff. And then enlisted locals to, to help, you know, help themselves, you know, rebuild. So he had a, a couple of friends who were teachers, uh, one of them, Stephen Beyer, um, who grew up here in the, in the States, worked with the Forest Service for a while, 
Um, I think he even might have had a, a tree service of some kind here, but then um, moved to the islands and was there, had been there for a long time and was, was a teacher and administrator at a, at a local school. He was their, their saw guy, and he recognized that just giving people chainsaws is maybe not the smartest thing that, you know, they really ought to think about some kind of training. So between those two guys, we they contracted for us to come out. And in coming out, they they had a few saws, chainsaws, mostly Stevens, but um, I think G had one as well. But they were the, the, close, the, the only dealership on the island was Ryobi. So not an ideal chainsaw, or we don't think of that as an ideal production kind of chainsaw or great saw. So using their saws, I looked into trying to get chainsaws out there, but it turns out they, you know, they thought they had the ability to, to start with using theirs. With the game of logging here in Vermont, Northeast Woodland Training, we have a, we've, we've all created, all the game of logging folks have created a storm damage training. And we have facilitated the use of what we call, it's called a portable capstan winch, which is a Honda motor with a, a capstan turnstile basically on it. it has a 2,000-pound pull. Just It's a handheld unit, weighs about 30 pounds. And the company is up in Canada, Portable Capstan Winch Company. And I talked to them, and they were excited to help out. I basically flew out because shipping was so exorbitant. I took it as my third piece of baggage, the winch and the ropes and, and the pulleys and all that. Uh, I flew out of Montreal and, and got there and 30 some hours later started looking around at what they you know needed to have done. And the two major trees they were working with were coconuts and what they call ironwood, which is not like our ironwood. It was a fast growing tree, very, very, very hard. And so we, the folks got together. There was a, a group of eight or nine of them, a couple of local folks and some of the school teachers and G, including Stephen as well. And we basically did exactly what we do here with game of logging. Started with level one. You know, it was, we always, when you go to a new tree, you're always curious as to how it, it's going to react. You know, will it react like a normal tree? Can you have, will the hinge hold? How thick does the hinge need to be? All that stuff. Soren Erickson's sort of philosophy was the first thing you do is start gathering information. So talking to locals there, talking to these folks who had cut some of these before, and I start to build a feeling of what the tree's like. Looking at the some of the stumps and the fibers in it, we decided to just go for game of logging standard hinge size, you know, 10% of the diameter of breast height and 80% for length of diameter of breast height. And gave it a try, and it absolutely worked perfectly. We went through the plan. that It went exactly where we wanted it to go, and then we were off. So working with these guys to to all get through the, the basic felling, going over the chainsaw maintenance. They had a lot of issues with trees leaning over houses um, that needed to be come off um, and standing trees that were threatening houses in the next storm that needed to be pulled away from the house or taken away from the house because they don't have a lot of equipment and bucket trucks. You know, we were dealing with these winches and pulleys and with mechanical advantage, we did a whole bunch of training pulling these trees away, mostly the ironwood, away from the houses. And they were pretty excited by it, and everything worked well. And 
it, it was just a quite an amazing time. Pretty bizarre to go from you know cold weather here to 85 degrees. So out of Montreal, which is always a, a interesting expedition, getting up there and into that airport, flew to Japan and then Guam and then Saipan. Interestingly, when we were there, G is one of these guys that knows everybody and everybody knows him. The, one of the heads of FEMA was there and G introduced me to him. We sat down with him and G was putting a pitch to him that um, FEMA needs to put up a lot of money and help basically the with with G's uh, toting the um, Saipan Sawyers, which was his, his big push. Um, he wanted to basically have us come out. Everything is shipped on cargo ships. So he wanted me to put together a hundred chainsaws and all the gear, PPE and the winches and ropes and all that stuff for a hundred different people. And then we would go around and train on all the, the Mariana Islands, which Saipan is one of, get these people trained up and he would basically give them all this equipment. He would raise enough money that between FEMA and other organizations so that they would get the saws, they'd get the training and they would be better at self-sufficiently, you know, cleaning up the, cleaning up the messes and, and being prepared for the next storms, you know, trying to clear trees away from buildings that when they, you know, do get blown over, won't destroy the houses. So that was sort of going to be in the works. I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. G has since moved to the States for a while. But in talking with him, he's, it's not out of the question. I think if, if we all made it a priority, I would bet very much that we could do something like that. Because there really, there wasn't anybody in that part of the world who had any kind of training. That, they brought in people like Arm Guard and stuff to do some of it. But even many of those folks are not necessarily skilled with chainsaws. And so did this experience when you came back to the States and, and started doing like your regular work, would you say that there were any big takeaways from it that have stayed with you? Just the, you know, what was bizarre is G took me to some of the, his classes with the high school kids. And he, he asked them to, if any of them wanted to um, talk about the, the storm, the, the super typhoon tutu, I believe they called it. Um, and a couple of the kids just came out and told the stories of, you know, these intense, incredible winds that came in at night and they're hiding in the bathtubs or under beds and the buildings getting torn apart. And young wow. woman just, she, she basically broke into tears that remembering it, you know, the intensity okay. and the scariness of it. So you come back here, you're like, you know, Oh my gosh, you know, this is something that we need to, to help with, you know, to help these right. people somehow. And it really yeah. drives home the whole climate change too, you know, things are drastically changing. So, you know, if it's one of those things, I think if, if, if life wasn't so busy and, you know, you come back and you're, you jump into your normal life, which for me is, is, is pretty nuts trying to juggle everything that you kind of forget, but every once in a while, I'm like, you know, no, we, you know, it'd be really neat to, take a break from this and go definitely do more there. Well, it's kind of a long and probably uninteresting story, but I was an average banker, kind of a middle manager and um, living in Salt Lake City, Utah. We had recently had a baby after some considerable effort 
And I realized I just was spending too much of my life away from this little baby. And um, my wife and I had kind of developed through our education and we had a home and we were typical young urban professionals, but we just didn't really like the course we were on. So we decided to etch a sketch our life, kind of shake everything up. And um, we determined through a number of just bizarre happenstance incidents is to uh, go to Saipan. My wife got a job and she's a physician assistant and everything fell into place. Um, and I kind of just stayed home with our daughter for a while and really enjoyed life learning to open coconuts. Um, it's harder than you think. I, I could have, could have lost a, lost a toe or something. <laughs> no, uh, um, coconuts are dangerous. Uh I so, um, yeah, so after a while, I started coaching the local soccer team at a high school, and I heard that they were short on teachers, so I thought I'd volunteer or look into it, and it turns out I was, you know, I had a college degree, and I could pass the teacher exams, and I had some experience working with youth, and I got on as a uh, public high school teacher, and um, from there... I was just objectively really bad at my job. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't a very good high school teacher at first because I kind of came with a lot of um, big place perspective, you know, like everything's got to be better where I'm from because it's a bigger place. But, you know, I had a lot to learn. And as I learned from my students and learned about their culture and learned about their community, I, I found that they had needs and I could help my neighbors with some of their needs. And um, so that's kind of how it all started. I developed some programs as a classroom teacher and eventually those programs matured and um, we sought a nonprofit home. And then by the time the uh, super typhoon U2 had arrived, we, you know, were working in the community as a nonprofit with students and teachers and community members of all sorts to feed and caretake and kind of clean up the island. And that effort, which began very humbly, grew very quickly thanks to the support of just many wonderful people like David Birdsall and many others. So um, we ended up having a volunteer effort of over 300 volunteers who compiled more than 26,000 volunteer hours. Um, and the work was progressing really well, but we kept on really running into a problem when it came to the cleanup efforts. Um, storms as big as Super Typhoon U2 tend to blow down trees. And the you know people that have chainsaws often haven't used them since the last typhoon. So they're rusty and maybe they don't have good blades and immediately the hardware stores are out of everything. Um, and then it's also a very dangerous thing to run a chainsaw. And many people don't have safety equipment. So you'll see people, you know, wearing flip-flops and shorts and uh, not even wearing any safety gear at all. And they'll be running a chainsaw while they're on a slope or climbing a tree or doing some crazy thing because these trees are on their houses and they're desperate to get them off because they can't 
shelter in place even. They can't begin to rebuild their homes until somebody gets the trees off. So the public entities do a, a, a great job now of clearing the roads and getting the trees out of the roads, but that still leaves a tremendous number of people with downed trees on their property or hazardous trees that could be removed prior to storms so that they don't blow over and make another family homeless. Because oftentimes these homes are strong enough to withstand the storms until a tree blows into them and weakens the structure in some way. So we have an ongoing problem and we only were ever getting very temporary solutions. I, I know that personally, I can't really picture what a super typhoon is like. I mean, it sounds scary, but you know, I've never lived through one. And, and maybe you could just give an idea of what, what it really feels like to be on an island when something like that is happening. You know, I, I was a banker who became an accidental school teacher. I didn't really plan on gaining these kinds of life experiences. I didn't mean to become an expert at duck and cover. <laughs> but right. you've got to realize that on an island that is largely, you know, has a tourist-based economy, and when you have the warning of storms that are maybe two or three days out, the first effort is to evacuate the tourists. So if you're a local, it's not like there's anywhere to go. And you just see these storms getting angrier and angrier, and you're just like, maybe it'll go south. But if it goes south, it's going to hit Guam. And if it goes just a little less south, then it's going to hit Rhoda. Maybe it'll duck us and just hit Tinian. But what you're really doing is just like wishing catastrophe on your neighbors. So you don't even know how to feel about this impending doom. It's, it's a monster, a 12-mile island getting swallowed. The eye of this typhoon is like 25 miles wide. When the eye of a typhoon settles upon you, it is an eerie feeling. The, the, the air sucks out, the pressure changes, your ears are popping, and it's like the storm wants to be in your very head. And during one storm, Typhoon Sotolor, my neighbor came out of their home. They came out of shelter in the eye, and I was afraid that they thought the storm was over. And when you're in the eye of the storm, of course, it's calm because you're not being hit by like 180 mile an hour winds at the moment. But what people fail to understand is that it's a spiral, right? So it goes over you. So all the wind is coming from left to right, left to right, left to right, 180, 190 bursts to 200, ripping at your storm shutters, shaking your roof. You hear palm trees snapping in half, but you can't hear anything because it's dark and you've got tin shutters over your windows. And then it's calm. And all the air gets vacuumed out of your house. Everything gets sucked outward. And then all the ferocity of those winds that were going left to right now hit you from right to left. It's like a boxer with all of their setup punches. So the devastation is in the far eye wall. So here I saw my neighbor and I was like, oh, shoot, she's coming out of cover. And she, I ran out into the storm and I said, hey, it's coming back. And she's like, I know, I'm just moving my car. And so in just this brief moment, I was standing in the eye of a typhoon. And it, it was like the maw of the Death Eaters. It was, it was like the Dementors from Harry Potter swirling up in a gray, angry funnel. 
it was the most terrifying, godless, lonesome experience. And that was the first time in 2015. That was Sotolor. That was a baby typhoon. That was just a Cat 4. Super Typhoon U2 was a, a Category 5. And all we could do, we were bunkered in with a, a friend in their concrete apartment building. And all we could do is watch out the window hour after hour. And as the lightning would flash, we would just see, you know, parts of the neighbor's houses flying away. People and animals running for cover. It's, it's devastating and powerless. It's, it's horrifying to see a community of 50,000 people get hit by the monstrous power of a super typhoon. It's, there's nowhere to go and there's no hiding place good enough. It's awful. Wow. In the aftermath, what really happens in the first few days? So what has happened in the past is that people will come to the island with chainsaws. They can travel with new chainsaws, but they can't take them home. So in the past, I had convinced one of these awesome crews to leave me with their saw. They trained me up a bit, and I had the saw and some chaps and some eye and ear protection. And so after you two... Like at 5 a.m., as soon as dawn broke, like before the all clear sounded, I went out to my truck and I found that it was unharmed. And that's a truck and a chainsaw and everything that belongs to our charitable organization. And everything was fine. So I started it up and got over the first little ravine and made it about 100 yards till I found a tree that had blocked the road completely. So I fired up my saw and as soon as my saw roared to life, it was like the neighbors were like, okay, it's on. They all came out. They started moving the wood, maybe 10, 15 people. And we had that, you know, road cleared, but I was now wet up to my knees and off I went because I had made a commitment to my wife to go check, you know, if on our home and our children's school. And so I was just trying to get home to see if we still had a home, but you know, road after road was blocked by trees. And so time after time, you know, I'm just sawing through for the next like four hours trying to get a mile and a half home. At one point, I noticed that there was a very large tree that was blocking the road. And um, I stopped to clear it and I was exhausted. I mean, it was like the fourth road I'd unblocked. And I just saw this dude hacking at this giant tree with a machete, which is the saddest thing you've ever seen when you've got a still chainsaw with a 30 inch bar, right. you know, it's like in your truck and you're like, well, should I go home or should I just like, what about the dude with the machete trying to hack a tree in half? Like, that's right. so I was like, all right, let me go check this dude. And I was, I was just exhausted. I'm like, let me sharpen up. And he's like, hurry, you gotta hurry. And I'm like, all right, but it'll go faster if I sharpen. So I'm sharpening my blade and this dude's just hacking at this tree. And I don't get the panic really, but, you know, I fired up my saw and all the cars that were trying to get up and down this road, which is a main road, it was, um, you know, they were all waiting. And so instead of just waiting for one idiot with a chainsaw to clear this tree, they all started getting out of their cars and helping. And pretty soon, this, you know, 40 people maybe were piled up waiting to move this tree. And as soon as we had created a pathway, the dude with the machete jumped in the car and drove off. And then the rest of us were like, yeah, I had <laughs> drinks and we had, you know, we had Gatorades and stuff. And yeah. then we posed for a picture and um, it ended up in the Guam Daily Post. And apparently 
the story is that that guy had like an auntie or something and she was having a health crisis and they were trying to get to the hospital. And this is all unbeknownst to me at the time. And, you know, but I understood later the, the amazing actions of this guy with the machete that like, what's too much for one person, Right. a, a tree blocking this road, blocking the way for his auntie to get to the hospital. That's clearly too much, but Islanders are amazing people. They don't just go, well, this is impossible. I'm going to give up. They say, this is impossible. I'll get started. And they start. And then they're community rallies. There are people who take care of each other. And so everybody comes. And one just happens to have a chainsaw. And pretty soon things are moving along. And that is the power of a community to overcome disaster. It's so inspiring. It's, intox it's intoxicating. <laughs> I know this is probably not on topic, but I, you know, I just recently relocated from Saipan to California and coming from a community that loves each other and takes care of each other. It's really disheartening to come back to the continent and see just kind of the callous disregard with which we treat our neighbors here. People are less likely to make eye contact or greet a stranger or say good morning. And it just seems like a lot of the friendliness has left, left this continent. And I really miss the islands in that regard because it is a place where when one person struggles 40 and 50 people will come to bear their struggle with them and they have a lot to teach us on the continent so how did you first get the idea to call to call game of vlogging well you know we started getting these shipments of chainsaws that were donated by amazing volunteer organizations and charities and stuff around the country and so now we're starting to get equipment, but it's like a varying usefulness, right? It's like a plug-in chainsaw. And then, you know, it's like if I give a chainsaw to a community member and then they cut their leg off working on their house or something like that, that would be horrifying. So it's like we really didn't know what to do. So we did have some amazing people like that fly in. They're like mercenaries of logging. And they come in for a week or two and they cut up trees. And I grabbed a group of these amazing volunteers and I said, hey, would you train some people on like how to use the saws safely and maintain them? And so they did like a three hour training with a handful of people and it was good. And I was like, oh, wow, we should do more of this. And so a friend of mine did some research. Stephen um, is he was a forest service logger. And he had, you know, like the story that I just told you about going out and cutting down that, all those roadways, that was happening all over the island by private, amazing people with their personal chainsaws, right? They, it wasn't like everybody's just waiting around helpless. Anybody with a means was working, right? They were, they were all pitching in. So Stephen, Stephen had been sawing down trees and taking them off houses and stuff because he had some experience and he had good equipment. And then I had, I'd been trying that and I had good equipment and we started to rally. And a lot of us are educators that were out of school because our schools were being used as typhoon shelters. So, you know, we started kind of reaching out and reaching out. And Steven said, what if we got like proper equipment and proper training? And I said, yeah, we're, we've got money that's been donated for our typhoon recovery through our GoFundMe account. Let's use some of that on this. And so Steven took the lead. And he did some research and he found, you know, according to him, sounds like game of logging is the best game in town. And 
he started to work with David Birdsall and David was so magnanimous. He lent all of this expertise. He said, okay, not only do you need chainsaws and training, you need uh, winches and ropes and pulleys and you need to know how to lift trees off of houses. And so all of this was so far beyond the original scope of what I, I thought it was just going to be like a dude who comes out, you know, kind of looks like a logger and shows us the proper way to hold a chainsaw and not to cut off our leg. And <laughs> it was so much more than that. You know, we had to get multi-day commitments from all of these people, not just teachers, but local people that had family commitments and you know, when your island's a disaster, it's like, hey, you guys, who wants to spend five days doing volunteer training? Yeah, <laughs> and right. some people, uh, nine of us, plus a few other kind of tagalongs, they all showed up. And wow. we committed to everybody that if they would go through the training, we'd give them a chainsaw, we'd give them safety gear. And um, David brought with him an arsenal of goods that he was able to acquire at a very discounted price. He was super generous with his time and expertise. And he, oh my gosh, when David, you can't understand, we're in the tropics, right? We don't wear shoes. Uh, I used to have a rule that said three articles of clothing and that included my sandals. So, (laughs) you know, David shows up and he's got enough beard for all of us. He looks like a logger. Definitely. (laughs) wearing these pants that look like stop bullets. You know, he's got all this gear. It was like the A team, just da 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 da. He's rolling out these <laughs> cases with winches and pulleys. I felt like it was in those James Bond scenes where Q equips everybody, and I'm like, <laughs> "What's this one for, David?" And he's like, "Well, that one, well, that'll pull eight thousand pounds of force with just the strength of your arms. You could lift a tree <laughs> right up off a house with that one." <laughs> Holy crap! David brought all the toys. It was amazing because, you know, we are part of America that often feel disenfranchised and forgotten. There are skills that we do not have that our brothers and sisters on the continent do have. David had all this knowledge, three decades plus of knowledge, and he, he had access to the right tools and equipment so we didn't waste our time doing the wrong things. He showed us how to use what we'd purchased, and um, it left a permanent foundation on the island for resiliency. It's not like these wonderful folks with chainsaws that fly in, cut trees down and fly out. That makes us dependent and weak. We want to do this on our own. So that means we got to learn on our own. And there's several efforts. The fire department are doing a wonderful job of getting trained through the U.S. Forest Service program, and they're expanding their chainsaw work. And now Game of Logging has nine, you know, certified sawyers Um, in storm-damaged and hazardous tree removal on the island of Saipan. And we have equipment worth, you know, more than $10,000, professional equipment that is ready to roar. And, um, you know, I thank Poseidon and all the gods that there has not been another storm since Super Typhoon U2. But when, when this next one comes, because it is inevitable... We will not be prepared. We never are. You can't be. But we are now more prepared. More trees will be cut back before they fall on houses. And after the storm, the damage will be removed much faster from private properties and private roadways. And we as a community are stronger. 
we've invested this money that was donated to us in our community and training and equipment. And um, some of these teachers even created a company and they're using this equipment to provide tree service, uh, tree removal on the island, which is being headed by Stephen. So, you know, you can't just keep your saws in the shed. You got to get out and, you know, risk the tendonitis and use them. For you, as uh, you know, learning from the game of logging method, you know, were there any big takeaways in terms of the method and, and you know, how it could be of use? You know, from a technical standpoint, yes, obviously. Um, I remember this one giant tree that had fallen on a barracks, which is like a multifamily home. And this was before we had gotten trained in the game of logging system. And we had a bunch of Marines that were volunteering their time off duty. And this one guy, he said, uh, do you have a crane or a bucket truck? And I said, no, I just have these saws. And the Marines said, all right, then if we don't have a crane and we don't have a bucket truck, we'll just use the United States Marine Corps. And these dudes crawled up on these fragile structures and this precarious tree and they attacked it. And I was like, we're going to lose some limbs and maybe some lives. Like these guys are reckless. Uh, You know, Marines have about one speed and they went vicious, but it was not safe (laughs) and it wasn't the best we could do. So we now would approach that same tree and have approached other trees, other projects since then in a much more safe and methodical approach. You know, we, we trim the leaning weight and we, we eliminate the burden from where we don't want it to be. And we attach our pulleys uh, to our awesome Honda winch. And um, we have practiced this time after time after time. And so now we could just safely remove that tree from the structure uh, under our control rather than just sending up haphazardly, you know, people with chainsaws. Uh, I really love the people of the Northern Mariana Islands. They became my friends and my neighbors and my family. (laughs) I don't want to see them losing limbs. Uh, Chainsaws are dangerous and everybody benefits from more training. So on that level, absolutely. But on another level, you have to understand something about the men of our island in a larger sense, but certainly the nine of us, the dozen of us who participated in this training with David, you know, it was months after a massive typhoon, you know, the largest typhoon essentially to hit America in history. And it's hard to feel powerless. It's hard to feel like you don't have any control and it's hard to feel alone before such a force of nature. And we got a dozen people, you know, couple, couple were female, but largely it was male. And um, we had some bonding. We got to feel like we had ability, that we were gaining strength together. We were gaining resilience for the next time. And that had a healing effect. It made it so that we didn't have to feel like there was nothing we could do just sitting there waiting for the next time to get pummeled that we could take some power back into our own hands. And what better representation of taking power into your own hands than a chainsaw? It, 
it was therapeutic. It was cathartic. It bonded us together. The competitions that David put us through gave us a reason to be excellent, to compete and brag over our friends. And um, I am proud to say that I am probably the fifth or sixth most competent of the nine. You know, I, uh, I had a lot I had a lot going on, but that was my best effort. We had some really skilled dudes that came out of this training. So I, I would do it on every island in the Pacific, you know, because this isn't isolated. Hazardous trees cause homelessness across the Pacific, and they are causing homelessness among a population that has the least resources to put those houses back together. So while we love trees, we love our tropical islands, many trees and many branches need to come down that are leaning on our houses just waiting for the next tropical storm to blow through. And it's like we have a choice. Do you want to remove the hazard or do you want to shelter that family for the next eight weeks? You know, do we as a community want to shelter that family, provide reconstruction support, send FEMA in to rebuild that structure, or for, you know, for a very small investment we just lop off that dangerous limb and let that family shelter in place it's like going to a dentist and just simply pulling out the dangerous tooth but i'll tell you i've been in this typhoon recovery game for a while it is very difficult to convince people to invest in prevention in resilience every everybody invests in blood in the streets but they don't want to invest in the strength of a community to prepare itself for the next storm. And that's that's what we got to think. Hey, and before we say goodbye, I just want to thank our sponsor, John Deere. To find success in the forest, you can wait for the perfect set of conditions, or you can give yourself every advantage to create your own. As the worldwide leader in forestry, John Deere is best equipped to provide those advantages. With productive machines, innovative technology, useful insights, and dependable support. The obstacle to success are many. Look to John Deere to help you outrun them all. 